Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. Those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by my ghost sponsors, Petroledger Financial Services, purveyor of the finest outsourced oil and gas accounting and location of my day job where I serve as the VP of Sales and Marketing. We do APAR, JIB, regulatory reporting, revenue disbursement, land, division order work, you name it. If it's upstream or midstream accounting, we have got you covered. There'll be a link in the show notes to our website. If you need us, reach out. Second is, of course, friend of the show, Arc Media. They help companies connect to their customers through digital marketing like websites, social media ads, and SEO. Basically, they're outsourced marketing. If you don't have a marketing team or if you need some extra firepower for your existing team, Arc Media is who you want to call. Their web address will also be in the show notes. It's not my company, but they have done work for me in the past, and they are great to work with. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am your aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee. Let's get into it. Tonight I've got myself a nice chai latte on this uh, Father's Day when I'm recording. Mmm. Tasty. And there's the inaugural sip. We know the show is going. All right. Well, here we go. So tonight, tonight I figure we'd do one of our Around the Horn episodes, kind of hit a few interesting news articles on things that are um, happening out and about in the world, talking about some things, and see what all's going on. There's been some news, and obviously I've got to weigh in on that in one form or another. So, all right, where are we going to start? We're going to start in North America. Might as well just get this one out of the way, right? U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visits China five months after Balloongate. Yes, yes, Balloon Gate. We love that. We love love that that's a thing. All right, so at this point in time, this is the first time a senior U.S. official has been to China since October of 2018. And there's no word yet if he's going to wind up meeting with Xi Jinping or not, but we do know he's meeting with some senior Chinese officials. Now, presumably... The items on the agenda include mending relations uh, between the U.S. and China, which have, uh, let's be honest, taken a bit of a nosedive as of late. Also trying to eat some of the trade conflicts, which kicked off. Um, All that started under President Trump. He uh, imposed some very significant uh, uh, trade sanctions on China. And Biden, surprisingly, has not canceled them. And in fact, he's even increased some of those trade sanctions, specifically in the tech and chip industries, um, which is kind of interesting to me that, um, you know, for all the things that Democrats and Republicans have been at each other's throats about uh, 
for the past decade or so. It is funny that this is one area, you know, and I believe the Democrats were even bitching pretty heavily during Trump's presidency about how they weren't going to, um, how we shouldn't be doing this to China. It's going to antagonize them, all this. And now Biden's in office. He's like, yes, we're going to keep the Trump era sanctions in there. We're going to increase them even further. And I don't disagree with him on this. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again because I'm a, I'm a, I'm an honest broker like that. I don't much care for Trump. But one thing that I 100% do believe he got right is we have to take a firmer stand with China. That's just it. That we just we just got to. I've done a ton of material in the show about uh, the situation with China and how what they're trying to do and how they're doing it. And you know what? I'll I'll give Trump credit on that one. He took the firmest hand with China that anyone has in quite a while. And I mean. Blinken has even admitted that Trump was right to be firm with China. Biden is continuing a lot of that stuff that Trump did with China. Uh, listen, if you guys have listened to the show any length of time, you know I don't go out of my way to uh, praise St. Trump all that often. Um, but credit where credit's due, I'm with him on that one. We, we needed to take a firmer hand with China, and he was the first guy to do so in a meaningful way. So... Got to give him that one. Don't worry. I got lots of other Trump-related news, so you'll get the other side of my opinion. But in this case, he was right. And even the Democrats, or at least the Democratic leadership, has had to admit that. Um, And, of course, the third item on the agenda is averting an armed conflict. Now, these seem like reasonable things to try and do. But at the end of the day, we are kicking off the 2024 U.S. presidential election cycle, and the anti-China rhetoric is already starting to heat up in D.C. What this means is that it's very unlikely there's going to be any lasting change in our relationship with China while there's a billion Republicans running and a Biden running. Um that are all going to be talking trash about China in the news cycle. It's just going to make it very hard for the diplomats to get anything done. Um, Not to mention, we know the things China's trying to accomplish, and in a lot of ways, they're kind of mutually exclusive to the things that we as a Western nation want. So I'm not sure what the dynamic there is. I'm not sure what the solution is. The fact that we are on some level engaging in conversation is a good thing, but... Yeah, I don't know what we're going to accomplish, but, you know, hopefully smarter people than me are uh, trying to sort this out. So, yeah, we'll see. Now, also of note is that um, Bill Gates is actually in China right around this time, too. And what's interesting is that he's actually uh, meeting with Xi Jinping himself, the actual president. And it is a little telling that Xi Jinping met with Bill Gates but has not commented on whether or not he'll be meeting with the actual official U.S. diplomats. Now, Gates is there ostensibly for uh, the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation, some sort of foundation work which necessitated or whatever him meeting with Xi Jinping. I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but, um, you know, what a surprise. A multi-billionaire rolls into the country and he gets to meet with the head of state. That's shocking, positively shocking. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if Xi Jinping will be meeting with the diplomats or not. Uh, the U.S. diplomats got a pretty frosty reception. Um, I think right around the time they arrived, the uh, head Chinese diplomat uh, did a 
a press conference where they basically said, yeah, let's just remember the reason our, our relations are so frosty is because of decisions the United States has made. And um, when you're starting this round of diplomatic talks with a inflammatory and finger-pointing uh, set of you know sound bites during a web conference, that's not exactly teeing everybody up for success. So I hope cool heads prevail. I hope we get somewhere with it. I'm not terribly optimistic, but I, uh, you know, expect the worst, hope for the best. You know, you guys know how I roll. So we'll see. Moving right along, what else do we got? Well, while we are talking about things that affect North America, I suppose we don't have a choice. We may as well get into it now and get it knocked out. And that is, of course, uh, former President Donald Trump's second court case. Now, what's funny is... In so much as you can derive humor from a former president being charged uh, in federal court for something, again, Trump is being charged this time under many counts of violating the Espionage Act of 1917. Now, for those of you who have listened to the show for a while, you might remember back in April, I did a episode called I Hate Woodrow Wilson and So Should You. And... Um, well, the title says it all, really. I mean, that's that's how I feel. Um, but I actually spent a bit of time in that episode talking about the bullshit of the Espionage Act of 1917 and how Woodrow Wilson didn't like freedom and it was a bullshit act and it was way overreaching and all this sort of stuff. And ironically, for those of you, my Republican brothers and sisters uh, in the program here, uh, you guys ought to be agreeing with me on this one, right? I mean, I, I preached about the evils of the Espionage Act uh, months ago, and here we are. The Espionage Act of 1917 is 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 back like the bitchy ghost of Christmas past. It's like I'm a, the, the Oracle of Abilene over here. I just knew we were going to need to know that piece of information. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and check it out, but I could do a whole bit on that. But um, So Trump's been hit with the Espionage Act, and— um, I'm going to be real blunt with you guys. It ain't looking good. So I said a few episodes back when we talked about our last sort of Around the Horn episode that there were four cases that were sort of – and this was before I think any of um, Trump's indictments dropped. There were four cases uh, that were sort of fluttering around in the ether. And um, two of them I thought could be serious, real real serious, and two of them I thought were going to be bullshit, jive-ass cases. The Stormy Daniels uh, payoff thing – uh, it, it's jive ass. It's bullshit. That's a nothing case. It's a nothing burger. Um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why very briefly I think that. And before I even explain that, let me say something else too. The media on all sides talking about the weaponization of the DOJ and the, the politicization of these criminal charges and all that, okay, our language with that is too heavy, Okay. We are getting way too carried away talking about how it's all targeted and it's all political and all that. Okay, just just let's dial the rhetoric back a little bit. But that being said, I do have to say the Stormy Daniels payoff case is a jive ass bullshit case. All right. Um, again, I'm not somebody that goes out of my way to defend Trump, but that case is, for lack of a better word, and fucking. God help me, no pun intended, but it's trumped up, okay? It's it's a jive-ass case. Did he probably put the wrong uh, 
declare that the payoff was in the wrong bracket, basically? Did he say it was for one thing, but it was actually for something else? Uh, you know, he did his legal fees rather than um, a non-disclosure fee or whatever on some forms. Uh, yeah, okay, sure, okay, a guy fucked up a form. Okay, like, a billion people get hit with this every year. Give him his $50 fine, slap on the wrist, and send him on his way. Like, you're not going to get 50 felony charges out of it. You're not going to send him to prison for it. I mean, come on. This is some sort of a prosecutor in New York who thinks they are going to just make their career off this, and it's going to be the start of just their rise to the top. Okay? It's a jive-ass case of bullshit. Don't worry about that one. Now, <laughs> this other one, though, the uh, the confidential documents, that is not a jive-ass case. So, uh, this past week, I downloaded and read in its entirety the indictment, which is about uh, 37 or 40 pages, somewhere in there, if I remember correctly. And to put it in a word, it don't look good. Let me give you the briefest, simplest possible version of this. Effectively, what they're hitting former President Trump with is a cacophony of charges under the Espionage Act, specifically to the tune of uh, he was in possession of documents that were top secret that he shouldn't have had. Okay, that's one charge. And and again, I know I'm doing this with crayons because most of you guys out there listening to this probably aren't lawyers. So, you know, and if, if there are any lawyers listening to this, yes, I know I'm dumbing it down. Just fucking deal with it, okay? Just work with me. Okay, so they're coming at him on one hand for um, – uh, for did he have confidential documents that he should not have had? Two, did he know they were confidential when he had them? Uh, did he show these confidential documents to anybody that was not authorized to see them? And perhaps most critically of all, did he attempt to uh, obstruct the government from receiving these documents back into custody of the National Archive or whatever the technical agency name is that's responsible for this. So those are kind of the four things they're hitting him with. Now, this is problematic for a bunch of reasons. And again, I'll very briefly kind of give you guys the the nutshell of the indictment. The problem is they have recordings of him. They have testimony from Mar-a-Lago staff and text messages from his staff. And, I mean, they've got – they, I mean, it's, it is an orgy of evidence that is damning. Um, it, it does not look good. Uh, there are text messages and recordings of these documents in boxes. In a, and there's, you know, oh, yeah, we brought all these documents from the White House. We stored them in a ballroom. Uh, one of the Mar-a-Lago staff snapped a picture of the boxes. The stacks had fallen over, and there was just like this uh, – just a pile of things marked top secret just spilled out on a floor, and this guy took pictures of it and texted it to other members of the Mar-a-Lago staff. So one, right there, you've got in possession of classified documents um, and have been seen by people that shouldn't be seen by, right? Then you've got text messages where um, uh, or recordings where Trump was meeting with various people, among them his his biographer, and 
audio recordings of, of former President Trump talking and showing these documents to his biographer and some other people. And he says in the recordings, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the exact quote pulled up, but he says in the recordings, um, you know, I should have cl- declassified this when I, when I was president, but I didn't. You're definitely not supposed to be seeing this, so just don't talk to anybody about it. But look at this, you know, and he, you know, should, it was showing it, but, you know, he says something to the context of like attack plans for how they would like wipe out Iran in a war. Um, I think they call it country A and country B, like it's, but it's showing a battle plan, top secret battle plans. And he admits in audio that he's not supposed to have this and it should have, you know, he, 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 this guy's not supposed to see it. That's real not good. I don't know what the defense in court for that is going to be, but it ain't good. Um, and then lastly, you've got the text between his staff and his attorneys and all this where basically Trump is telling them, the government's sent their subpoena and said they're going to show up here to collect these documents, and Trump has his people move them to different facilities so that the government doesn't find them and even says, well, can't we just can't we just lie to them and tell them we don't have them? Uh, this is so not good. Uh, this is r- real big bad. Um, and that's just the evidence they have in the indictment. That is literally just what's in the indictment. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's going to be a serious case. I will say this. I had a security clearance when I was in the military. I had to handle sensitive documents. If I had done this, like had stacks of documents at my home and people and you had recordings of me showing up to people, I would still be in prison to this day. I would be in Leavenworth and they would throw away the fucking key. That would just be the end of my adventure. So. Ah, man, I don't know. You know, and I want and I want to say this. I want to say this. Trump, it seems to me from what we see in the indictment, they got a bit of a slam dunk case here. I mean, it seems like he's checked all the boxes. Did he have the shit? Yep. Did he know he wasn't supposed to have it? Yep. Did he know it was classified? Yep. Did he show it to people he should have? Yep. Did he try and not give it back to the government when they came to get? Yep. But here's the thing. Do I think Donald Trump is like some nefarious actor, some sort of like KGB agent? Which I actually had somebody text me, Trump's a Trump's a fucking KGB agent. He's working for the Russians. This was all part of a plan to steal documents. No, he wasn't. Okay? No, he wasn't. Calm down. That is not what's happening here. Listen, I don't know. I've met Donald Trump once. Uh, I can't say that I know him. I don't have any deep understanding of the man's psyche. But I'm making a guess here. My guess is he kept these documents for the same reason that I probably would have kept them. Because it's a cool souvenir of something really neat that no one else got to have while you were the president. I can get that. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it okay. But he wasn't, I don't believe, any sort of a foreign agent. I don't think there was any overtly malicious, nefarious mastermind scheme. And by the way, storing him in a fucking bathroom at Mar-a-Lago is not exactly the hallmark of a KGB agent. Okay? He's just a fucking guy who picked the wrong trinkets to take back with him from his last job. Okay? I still have a stapler from my time at Blue Cross. The difference is, it doesn't include our battle plans to wipe out Aetna. So, that being said... 
This is a very serious set of charges, and there should be a very serious consequence for being careless with extremely confidential stuff. There, there just has to be, okay? If I, as an airman, was subject to very strict con- uh, consequences, if I did something like this, I got to hold the commander-in-chief to a similar standard, okay? That's that's me. That's where I'm at. That's my head in it, okay? Uh, I don't think we need to take him out back behind the chemical shed and execute him. But there's got to be some real some real consequences on that one. That's that's serious charges. I'm not okay with um with showing highly conf- I mean, fucking battle plans and shit. And like, you don't be showing that to people. It's it's top secret stuff. It's big boy stuff. Don't do that. Uh, so anyway, all of that ranting over with. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is, of course, Trump's recent set of attorneys just resigned, and there's some. You know, it's I think it's what, 20 or so attorneys in the past 12 months have resigned from working for Trump. I don't know what his defense is going to be, and I don't think at this point he does either. But that's not helping his situation. The fact he can't keep any attorneys employed. Um, But what I will say is statistically, I had to go look this up, but the United States government has not lost uh, or excuse me. They have only lost in the past 78 years. They have only lost one Espionage Act prosecution. Since World War II, they've only lost one case they've brought against somebody on Espionage Act. And I believe, if memory serves, every single one of those uh, convictions resulted in jail time. So, uh, I mean, the prosecution has a 99% win rate on these kind of charges, and boy, oh boy, uh, they've got quite quite a stack deck in there. And I mean, uh, legitimately, I mean, I'm fucking recordings and shit. That's not good. I don't know what is going to happen from this. I don't even know what should happen um, as far as, uh, you know, what uh, an appropriate level consequence would be. But what I will also say to the folks that say, oh, it's not a big deal, you know, Biden and W and, and Pence all had documents. They did. The difference is there's no recording of them showing them to people that they shouldn't. And there is certainly no directives written down where they've told their staff to conceal them from the government getting them back. The moment, you know, they said, yes, come get them. We found them. They're here. Come get them. They'll be there. There's thus far no evidence that Pence or Hillary or anybody else said, um, oh, yeah, 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 come get them. And then texted their staff and said, no, okay, move it to this other place over here. Take it to another facility. Therein lies the problem for Trump. That is the big issue here. Um so I don't know. It's pretty wild. I uh, can't believe it. It's it's something. So uh, what I will say, if you get brought up on espionage charges, my unofficial legal advice to you is get a plea deal because 99% chance the government's going to win. And um, that's just how that goes typically. All right, moving on. Africa, speaking of some crazy shit that's happening in the world. So South Africa um, – the wealthy are currently digging water boreholes in their backyards. It's the newest trend in Johannesburg and Pretoria. Now, you may be asking, why is that, Jordan? Well, you see, Pretoria and Johannesburg, the most populous cities in the capital of uh, South Africa, are high up on a plane in South Africa because, you know, we love geography in this show. It's something we talk about quite frequently. And in order for them to get water up there, it has to be uh, pumped through electrical pumps, pressurized, and sent up onto the plane from the lowlands. Now, 
if these pumps exist, why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because those pumps are, for the most part, out of power. You see, South Africa uses predominantly coal power um, as their source of electricity across the country. And as of late, they have been having load shedding, uh, which means power cuts for, in some cases, as much as 16 hours a day, which means water is not getting pumped to the city. So everybody's having to use bottled water. Uh, the wealthier drilling watering holes in their backyard, trying to find their own source of water that's not tied into um, uh, the electric pumps, all this sort of stuff. And um, when I dug into this, it was just wild. It was absolutely insane. I haven't, I had no idea that um, this ESCOM situation was as bad as it is. ESCOM is the uh, major, I think it's state-owned company that handles uh, energy in South Africa, predominantly the coal energy. And the level of corruption is staggering. Uh, this was so shocking, some of the stuff I read, that I might very well end up doing a um, – a full deep dive deep dive episode on this. In fact, I might do this. Could warrant being one of the um, infamous scandals episodes I do. Which um yeah, I'm gonna probably put a couple more of those out here in a few weeks, maybe. Um, but I will almost assuredly have to do more of an SCOM episode because basically, to give you some very high level stuff here, uh, the corruption in South Africa's energy sector is mind-bogglingly massive, hundreds of millions of dollars in bribes. There are illegal uh, coal mines that are being run by actual criminal cartels that are selling the coal. Uh, government coal mines are being literally robbed or they're just rolling up there, paying off the guards and taking whatever they want and then selling it back to the government at an enormous price. Um Whenever anybody tries to clean this up, it goes completely off the wall. Uh, several of the gangs that are running energy rackets in South Africa actually attempted to assassinate the CEO of ESCOM. He was poisoned with cyanide in his coffee at his office. The CEO of the company was poisoned with cyanide. This is a Game of Thrones. What do you mean be poisoning the CEO? That's wild. And on top of this, there's another instance, just one of many, by the way. I mean, again, I could dedicate and probably will an entire episode to this, where workers have been systemically sabotaging coal plants that produce power in order to force the CEO of, of ESCOM to give maintenance and repair contracts to other gangs that have the rackets on those construction teams. And so what they'll do is they'll deliberately go in, destroy equipment, and then say, well, you got to use this company to fix it. And by the way, it's going to be $500 million to fix this $10 million thing. Oh, this other plant broke, $20 million to fix this $2 million thing. Um, and it's gotten so outrageous that the company is effectively in the process of collapsing. And that's why they're having to cut power to deal with this and to handle all the money that's going out to handle to pay all these gangs. Um, and anybody that gets in the way, up into and including the CEO, they try and whack, or they do whack. I mean, the CEO ended up resigning and then fleeing the country after this. And supposedly, another CEO of ESCOM uh, previously had his family literally threatened if he did not bring in the right 
contractors to do all the work. The the corruption is it boggles the mind. It literally boggles the mind to have this much blatantly open corruption. And there's a whole lot of politics in South Africa regarding an energy transition and how that's playing a factor in these gangs getting much more aggressive because they don't want there to be any alternate source because they've got this huge coal racket going. Um, it's, it's just wild. So I'll leave on that topic just saying we're going to do an episode on that because uh, I was astounded. So that'll be that'll be upcoming but that is a current situation happening there uh we already talked about bill gates in um beijing meeting with uh uh the president of china so i guess there's that um also of note we've got uh in australia my aussie friends uh it's been announced that as part of their defensive arrangement with the united states the aussies will be re- acquiring three virginia class attack submarines um, two of them are going to be discontinued. Or di- la, la, la. Let me try that again. Uh, two of them will be decommissioned U.S. submarines that are being phased out of the service and sold to Australia effectively. Um, and then one of them is going to be a brand new build right off the assembly line. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. We've talked at length in this show about the geopolitical situation with China and the South China Seas. And Australia is one of our biggest allies in that region. And they've had a pretty old submarine force. Um, I think most of their submarines were 70s, 80s. uh, And I think they were British designs they bought uh, that had been decommissioned um, previously. So they're pretty old boats. Um, At any rate, Virginia-class submarines, to give my non-naval listeners a little bit of background, are relatively new. Um... They started coming off the assembly line. I th- uh, memory serves it was very late '90s, or um, it was somewhere between like '99, 2005. I think when the first Virginia started coming off the assembly line, they're a pretty, pretty new set of boats. Um, at this point, they make up a sizable amount of our hundred killer submarine force. Uh, I think we still have quite a few Los Angeles class boats floating around out there as well. Um, the Virginias were basically a replacement for the Sea Wolf, which was our sort of at the late stages of the Cold War, like our biggest, baddest hunter killer submarine. And then the Soviet Union collapsed and they did something that was not quite as badass and not quite as expensive. So they went with the Virginias, which was kind of supposed to be in a bit of a sweet spot. Uh, it could do more littorals work, that kind of thing. Um, I believe, and I'm kind of going off my distant memory here, but I believe we actually already have a replacement to the Virginias in the pipeline. I don't think it's launched yet, but I think they're they're coming along with it pretty well. Um, at any rate, all of that to say, the Virginia-class attack submarines are nuclear submarines. They are um, certainly going to be a massive step up in capabilities for Australia, and I think it's very interesting that, you know, they're getting Virginias and not, you know, Los Angeles, which is the main hunter killer we had prior to that. Those, um, yeah, I guess maybe as I think about it, the reason they're not getting those is because the Los Angeles class mostly came out in the seventies and eighties, and they're probably hitting the end of their service life at this point, barring um, a pretty major refuel or something. So, yeah, I guess I guess it would be Virginias. I don't think there's enough hours left on the uh, Los Angeles to probably, I mean, it doesn't matter. Anyway, the point is you're getting three Virginias. That's the takeaway here. And 
the reason they're getting such a new and relatively badass submarine is because of all the South China Sea stuff that we've discussed before and the whole Malacca Strait situation, which we already know. Um, but it is interesting. It is interesting. That's that's going to be a pretty big capability upgrade for, for Australia, so good for them. Uh, speaking of Australia, I know quite a few episodes back, I talked about that lady who got arrested in, um, was it Sydney, with that gold-plated 45, like a stone-cold pimp. Um, I haven't found any updates on that yet. So any of my Australia listeners, if you guys have heard of what happened with that case, uh, specifically what the fuck she was doing going to Australia with a gold-plated 45, uh, write in. Let me know. I'd love to know where that thing's standing. That lady was just so stupid, I want to know what happened to her. That's all. I just got to know. It's um, it's heavy on my heart. I got to know what she's doing. Also, what a terrible waste of a gold-plated 45. You know, and just just dummy dummy move. Shouldn't have done that. Um, and last thing I think we'll hit on this evening would be the Ukrainian counteroffensive update. Now, by the time this shows air, the counteroffensive will of course be uh, about two weeks old. But at this stage in the game, the counteroffensive in Ukraine has kicked off, and we know that they are meeting some very stiff resistance from the Russians, which is not terribly surprising. The Russians have known there's a counteroffensive coming. They've been bringing in mobilized troops. They've been digging trenches. They've been preparing for this literally all winter. And um, if the Ukrainians want it, they're going to have to fight for it. Now, the Ukrainian advance is, they are making progress, but it is it is not the sweeping, vast wins that they were probably hoping for. It's much more um, uh, kilometer by kilometer, as they say. So... At this point, we'll see a number of nations have reconfirmed that they'll be sending even more supplies over. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of news, a lot of fluff is coming out about the counteroffensive. But the only thing we know for certain is it's not moving as fast as wanted. But also, they are making some progress. Um, there's a lot coming out from Russia of how they've just been wiping out entire battalions of Ukrainian forces, which. And like most Russian propaganda is propaganda. And don't get me wrong, the Ukrainians are spinning their own stories. So the Ukrainians are going a different direction. They're just not saying much of anything about what's going on. So at this point, the fog of war and that whole situation, we don't really have a clear picture of how how far anything's advanced, where things are at, anything like that. At this point, it's very much um, – we know there's some progress being made, but we know it's a lot of very, very heavy fighting. So – Hopefully in a few weeks we'll get a better sense of where it's at and, um, you know, best of luck to the Ukrainians, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, we just – it's it's a confusing mess. I wouldn't read too much into any news that comes out between now and, you know, probably another month, I would say. Um, barring a sweeping victory from one side or the other, I don't think we're going to get any clear information from anybody on what's actually going on down there on the ground. So, um yeah, that's kind of where we're sitting on that one. Um, and I think that more or less covers what I jotted down to talk about tonight. Um, one thing I'll note, if you do want to sponsor the program, please reach out to either myself or business daddy, Mark LaCour, the big boss. Um, appreciate you guys, as always, listening to my little rants and screeds. Upcoming episodes, like I said, I actually really do want to do one on South Africa now. I think their entire energy situation is wild, and so I think that bears an episode. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, we'll probably have a uh, Q&A episode here in a few weeks coming up or something. Got a stack of questions I haven't gotten to yet. And, of course, as always, if you would like to uh, have a topic addressed or have a question or anything like that, by all means, write in. I mean, my email will be in the show notes, but it's jordan.driscoll at com. All right, well, that's what I got for you. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day, rest of your week. And uh, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you, I've never been indicted. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.